So far this morning, we have declared great truth together as a body. By our participation in the Lord's table, as we have said, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And together we declare the words of the Apostles' Creed. I want to really briefly read those over again so you can hear them and not have to say them. Think about these words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And to this we all said, Amen. I restate that, not only that we could hear the words of this, but we can hear and remember that with our own voice this morning, that I in my own voice, you in your own voice, stated and declared that as being your conviction. I believe in. As we've spent time in Ephesians here, the last few passages have centered around an assumption that these brothers and sisters that Paul was writing to, he calls them saints. He says, assuming you have heard about Christ and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The creed we declared, the Lord's table that we participated in, if you have declared those things with your own voice, if you have participated in the Lord's table, by your own actions. And that would indicate that you too have indeed heard Christ's gospel and have put off the old self and put on the new self in Jesus. And therefore, we now have responsibilities to God in Christ. A common criticism of the theological stream which we are a part of, the kind of reformed Calvinistic stream, is that it takes all of the responsibility off of man and puts it on God. God does all things by his sovereign will, by his great power. It says that it takes it all off us and just casts it upon God. That man is just mostly along for the ride. But we know that the Bible teaches and we would fully affirm that God uses means to accomplish his sovereign plan. He has determined in his plan 
God is the one who has determined, but in his plan, he has determined that he will use means. He will use the means of a person who prays. He will use the means of a person who confesses. He will use the means of his faithful people to accomplish his sovereign plans. And among the means that God uses to accomplish his purpose and election is the repentance and faith of those who would call upon him. We are not just along for the ride as God works. Yes, God is the sovereign and ultimate designer of all things. Yes, he is the primary cause. But yet we retain our agency. God has designed and worked all things such that we are still culpable. We are still responsible for our own actions while he remains still in control. We have declared our allegiances. We have submitted ourselves to the God of the universe who sent his son that through his perfect life, death, and resurrection and glorification that we might be reunited to God. And we are then given the Holy Spirit who works in us to sanctify us and draw us to him. Assuming that, as Paul does with his people. Assuming that you have confessed these things truly. Assuming that you have believed what you said and you have meant what you have done this morning. We will come to our passage this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 31 and run to chapter 5, verse 2. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave him up himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There is no language in Paul's exhortations that suggests we as believers are simply along for the ride. He pretty straightforwardly gives the basis. These Ephesians have heard and have believed the gospel. I assume that you have heard. I assume that you believe these things. I've called you saints. Therefore, do this. Recognize, he assumes past tense, that they have been saved. They are not doing this that they would be saved. But he assumes that they are saved. We have been warned to live together as one body, caring for one another by our actions, being careful not to tear one another down by continuing in the sinful patterns of the old man. And the reason Paul gives for that is that it grieves the Holy Spirit when the body would tear itself down, that our members would tear each other down. And it culminates in this command in verse 32, which pours into the opening of chapter 5. 
And this is another one of those passages that I wish we all could just memorize and have written in our hearts and our minds and our thoughts. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ has set the tone. Christ has set the standard for how we are to live. In our time of family worship lately, we have been looking as a family at the New City Catechism, just on a different track than our Sunday school. But we have taken a look at the fact, well, if God has given us his law, and we also would affirm that nobody is capable of fulfilling God's law perfectly, no one has and no one ever will except for Jesus, why would God bother giving it in the first place? Why leave it there? Why not just take it out entirely if we can't do it? Because it reminds us of a need for our Savior. When we hit the law and go, nope, haven't been perfect there. Nope, I have transgressed the law here. No, I have been sinful there. No, I am not perfect. No, I can't. We are driven either to despair because we are completely unable to follow God's law, which is not the purpose of it, or we are driven to Christ saying, I can't do it, but he has. We've all heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and it culminates in that most utterly impossible command, be perfect. Not just humanly perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God the Son commanding the crowds, be perfect. As God the Father, the creator and almighty of the universe is perfect. Let's read that from Matthew 5. And I'll include some more because I'm going to come back to it. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it's, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? 
Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. First thing I want to engage with is that of turn your cheek, hand over your coat, love your enemy type section. The love for our brothers, the people that we are close with, is called out in Matthew as being the most elementary form of love. Even the tax collectors, even the pagans know to love their, their own. Even the world knows how to do that. Return love for love. But what of the moments when those whom we love reveal that they are imperfect and they have unlovable characteristics? I still have parts of the old man living in me, parts of the old man that I need to be putting to death. And when he comes out, my sinful nature manifests itself in an unloving way towards God's people, towards the people around me. And if that is the case, then you are to keep on loving me. I don't stop loving my children when they are acting in such a way as to make them unlovable. Did a drive to Lac La Biche for my sister-in-law's graduation day before yesterday. And Jaylin screamed from just outside of Lac La Biche to St. Paul. At the top of her lungs, turning purple the whole nine yards, she was utterly unlovable in that moment but she's my kid. I love her anyways, even though she was utterly unlovable. And we are to continue loving one another. And that is just so basic and assumed that Matthew leaves that as the groundwork for what he's saying. It's like, even the pagans know how to do that. They love their kids. They love their own people. If Jesus can command these crowds to love their enemies and those who hate them in such a self-sacrificing manner, how much more then should we continue loving and turning the other cheek and handing over our coat to those who share in the very body of Christ with us? It's no wonder that Paul says that the Holy Spirit would be grieved if we are unwilling to do so. Even the pagans know how to love each other like this and you aren't willing to love each other who are part of the body when you are offended by one another? God has shown common grace on all of creation, sending the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, his loving kindness against those who are against him. And yet his saints are sometimes tempted to even refuse such love for one another, much less the unrighteous, whom they've also been commanded to love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And this is bringing it back to what I'm talking about from our passage here today. Christ has set the standard. 
Christ has shown us how to do this. How are you supposed to love your fellow church member who offends you? Christ loves you. So if Christ loves you, then you know yourself. You know that you are roundly unlovable at times, and Christ has loved you. How then can you be unloving towards fellow brother or sister? A second connection that I want to make back to Paul on this message from Matthew is that all of these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount are tied back to the character of God. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That seemingly conditional phrase, that you may be children of God, should cause a casual reader no end of concern. I must love even my enemies. And my love for my enemies is to be a condition of my status before God. You may as well tell me to move the earth. So reading that, how am I supposed to do, do that? I, I can't do that. That I may be children of my Father in heaven. I can't do that, so I'm obviously not a child of God. Well, then he tacks it on one more. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It would be far easier for us to move the entire earth than to follow that command. I am sure humanity could figure out a way to move the earth, but we have not even come close to figuring out how to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Because even our own holiness, even our own righteousness is stained with sin. Filthy rags before God, before the thrice holy God. No angel is ever going to sing of one of us as they did of the Lord in Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Samuel was correct in 1 Samuel 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Moses' song in Exodus 15.11 should fill our lips. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The answer, no, there is none like you. But the Son commands us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The command from Leviticus 19.2 is repeated seven times throughout Scripture. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Spend any amount of time meditating on this, and you will end up like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Be holy as he is holy. And over and over and over again throughout Scripture, there is no one holy like our God. 
and our passage this morning commands us, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We follow the example of Christ, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, loving one another as Christ has loved us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When we picture the Apostle Paul, this pillar of the faith, this pillar of godliness, but the one thing that makes his message so compelling is that he was incredibly godly. He was incredibly righteous as far as people go. But he was just a man like us. He failed. He sinned. He experienced the shame of failing to reach that standard set by God, and it drove him absolutely mad. I want to be here, and I am here. I want to be here, but I am here. But Paul's strategy for godliness was to imitate Christ. He followed the example of the only perfect man ever to walk this earth. And repeatedly throughout his letters in Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica, Paul encourages these believers to imitate him. Not because he was perfect, but because his Savior was perfect. He's not saying, imitate me and you will be perfect. He says, I'm focusing my eyes on Christ. I am imitating him, so imitate me as I do that. We all should be doing that. The letter to the Ephesians in our last chapter or so has used a mix of metaphors. The church is a body. The church is a temple. The church is a family. But Paul here is returning to the family metaphor. Through Christ we have access with all the saints in one spirit to God the Father. So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints, members of the household of God. And as members of God's household, we must be about the family business. It doesn't matter what language you look at. Worldwide, people's surnames if you are in a culture that has adopted a surname, it has usually followed the tradition of the family trade. That's why we have potters and smiths and fletchers and cooks and skinners in English. And I was interested when I was looking into this tradition of family names and how they, how they have worked across the world, that is in a pile of different languages of and there's even lists of, okay, these are all the words in German that have now become family names because you're just following the family trade. And for us to be imitators of our father and our elder brother, we must be about the family business. And why you always followed the family business throughout history. 
there wasn't dedicated trade schools and vocational universities that are accessible to people. You learned from who you knew and from the person who had a vested interest in training you, usually your own father or your brothers or your mother. You followed the family trade. And our father has been about the business of training his people in holiness, the family business from the very beginning. Every page of Scripture calls us to it. I mean, that is the Old Testament in a nutshell. God's call and example of holiness and God's children not doing a great job of imitating that. I've just finished reading in my personal devotion, First and Second Kings. If you've had the pleasure of reading First and Second Kings lately, it's so-and-so was a king, and he was unrighteous, as his father was before him, and these are the things he did wrong. And that's on repeat, and every now and then you get a little, so-and-so was a king, and he did what was righteous in God's eyes, but not all of it. And because of that, he was, and it's kind of this repeating circle, and the Old Testament all the way through is this people, God gives them the example, God gives them the commandments, God gives them his law, and his people are unable to attain to it. Then Christ comes. He was to be the firstborn among many brothers, according to Romans 8. That those who were called according to God's purpose, those whom he foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, would truly be about the family business. How do we act rightly, both individually as well as in the family of faith? We forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. We walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We glorify God as Christ did, giving himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's why we read from Hebrews. Christ gave himself up for us as an offering to God, and we are called to present our own bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That is not living on the sidelines. That's not just being carried along as passive participants in whatever God is doing. We work and we strive and we train and we beat our bodies into submission, all for the sake of God's glory. All that we might attain to this holiness that has been laid out and modeled for us by our Heavenly Father and by our eldest brother, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Notice if we hold fast to our boasting in our hope. We aren't holding fast to our boasting in our how well we have done in following Christ's example. We do all of the hard work of holding fast and pursuing holiness, the holiness to which we are called. We do all of the hard work of putting to death the old man and putting to death our own sin. And we do so, as we do so, 
God uses that as a means of bringing to pass what he has promised in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. God's people are protected. They are preserved. They are saved out of the world because God has saved us. And God has determined that as part of and because of this, we will imitate him. We will be conformed unto the image of his son. And that will happen as we follow his example and as we imitate and mimic everything we see in Christ. And we will not do so perfectly. Kids are a great way of seeing how imitation doesn't always go perfectly. They see mommy doing something. They see daddy doing something. They want to do it too. And they imitate us. And oftentimes we are doing something they are incapable of doing. Sherry started cooking with our kids fairly regularly, picking one of them. So, okay, you're going to come help make supper. She shows David how to crack an egg. She cracks an egg. And then gives David an egg. David smashes an egg. And she does it again. And he does it again. And then eventually David ends up handing mommy eggs so we still have enough eggs to finish the project. But he is imitating to the best of his ability with everything he is capable of mustering in his little self. Mommy broke open this egg. I, too, am going to break open this egg. And he does not do it perfectly. We do not imitate our Father perfectly. We do not imitate our older brother, our Savior, Jesus Christ, perfectly. We all fall short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And that is why Jesus Christ couldn't just come and live a perfect, sinless life on earth as an example for us. Humanity was not just waiting for, okay, this is how it goes, how you do it. We weren't just waiting for an example of, oh, okay, now I get it, and then we could just go ahead and do it. Jesus came, lived, set an example, and then he died. He allowed himself to be put to death on our behalf. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We must do what only God can do. We must be holy as he is holy. That, over and over again throughout Scripture, is abundantly clear. But we cannot be holy. We must forgive as Christ forgave us. But we can't quite do that, can we? We must love as Christ has loved us. Think of the person that you love, the 
absolute most in the world and tell me that for even one second you have perfectly loved them as Christ has loved you. And if you can say that you have, you don't know how Christ has loved you. Only God can do these things perfectly. So we imitate as best we can, as God has allowed us to do. And don't be fooled by the line of thinking that we do our best and then Christ does the rest. Our best is not enough. Our best is worse than not enough. Our best is stained with sin. Christ doesn't just fill up what we are lacking. We make a failing effort at holiness, but we strain towards it every day. Every day that God gives us on this earth, we strain towards holiness to obeying the commands that God has given us. And then at the end of our lives, before God, we have not an ounce of our own righteousness to show for it. God has commanded it. We did everything we could to do it. And then at the end of our lives, we say, all I have is Jesus. All I have is his righteousness on my behalf. If we are found in Christ, then we find Christ in us, our hope of glory. Our hope of glory is not Christ in us and our own righteousness. That's why we gather to proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection. We proclaim his death, for by his death we are made righteous. We make these proclamations and we live in light of them as best we can. As we can this morning, we imitate our God walking in love as Christ has loved us, as he has given himself up for us. We forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. And we do so in the mindset that Paul had and described to us in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Nothing you can do can earn you a righteousness of your own. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We do not stop at proclaiming faith. We do not stop at saying, this is what I believe. I have known many, many rank pagans who say, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But then you take a look at their lives and go, no, you don't. Your parents taught you that Jesus was God, and you said that from the time you were little. Yeah, I believe it. But no part of your life says that you do. 
Paul goes on from this passage in Philippians 3 to say, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We are called to imitate God. We are called to walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us. And that is a legitimate command. You are to do this. And when you hit the wall and realize, I'm supposed to do this, but I'm pretty bad at it, then we turn to the person who actually knows what they're doing, are actually capable of what, what we're trying to do, say, you have to do this, because I'm going to keep trying, but you have to do this if it's going to be done. So, this morning as we close, let us live and do in light of what Christ has done. Let us be imitators of our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. His Son, Jesus Christ, that we might be able to call Him our brother because of the adoption that we have received in Him. Let us live and do and continue to declare these truths to each other and to any and all who would listen. Let's pray. Our God, you have called us to imitate you. God, we have not done a very good job. We have not imitated you well. We have not done the subject of our imitation justice. For there is no one holy like you. You are holy, holy, holy. And we, by nature, are children wrath. We, by nature, are sons of disobedience. We are weak. We are sinful. We are lost. We have not imitated you as we should. But Lord, may we beg upon the righteousness of Christ May we say, not I, but Christ in me, the hope of glory. That we would not think to boast in our own righteousness. But that we would also pursue righteousness every day. Pursue holiness every day. Not because one day we're going to get there and be worthy of you, but because your Son was worthy, and it is all that we can do to try to live up to what He has done out of our gratitude and our obedience to You. So may we obey You to the best of our abilities and beyond that, according to the working of Your Holy Spirit. May we praise You with our lips. May we praise You with the works of our hands. 
May we praise you in the congregation here. May we praise you in the world into which we go. And in all of these things, that we would not make much of ourselves and our own righteousness and our own holiness, for we have none. May we make everything of the righteousness found in your Son, Jesus Christ. And that day by day, we would find ourselves being sanctified even just a tiny bit more like your Son, Jesus. Just ever so slightly better able to imitate him knowing him better, that we might even know what it is that we're imitating. Knowing that he has done what only he can do on our behalf. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.